Hey everyone, welcome to the third episode of For the Students. Just a quick update with the technological side of all of this. If, if you're listening to this episode, right now, tentatively, it'll be hosted on SoundCloud. But exciting news is that I have officially submitted it to Apple and Spotify. So presumably moving forward, episodes four and onward, you'll be able to listen to that through whatever podcasting things you typically listen to. Um, we're just I've, I've been waiting for a couple days, three, four days now, to actually hear back from those from those service providers to make sure that everything's going well and that it's all under under their terms of service. So there's that. This episode, I talked to Dr. Lindsay Wexler, who's an assistant professor of education here at North Central. We sort of cover a, a number of different topics, things like being a, a parent and, and when do we switch off the parent-teacher mindset and just let our kids be kids. We talk about her experience actually working in the classroom and how her family has is, is historically been involved with that and, and how they continue to be more involved um, now that she is a professor. And we talk about the sort of demystifying part of being a professor. What the heck do we do with our time? What do people perceive that we do with our time? And, and what bits do people get wrong? So I, I had a really great time talking with Lindsay. And it's one of those conversations where even though we don't work in the same discipline and that our day-to-day interactions look very, very different, she's in a classroom observing students teach, and I'm not, um, a lot of what we sort of bond about as being parents and teachers and educators is those those fun nuances, those building moments with the students and with the people that we get into. So enough of me rambling. Let's hop into the episode with Dr. Lindsay Wexler. I, I had a conversation with my mom months ago when I first got the job, and I announced that I got the job because I bought a North Central hoodie for Alex, and I put him in it, and I put it on the internet because that's what we do as parents. We exploit our children. Yes. And my mom made a comment to the effect of, well, when do you get your stuff, like your apparel? I was like, what? When do I go to the store and buy it for myself? She's like, wait, you have to buy that? I was like, yeah, of course. She's like, wait. You're, you're a professor there. They should just give you. So I told I told Wendy, I said, we need to give new faculty like a swag box, just like a hoodie or a hat or something, because that's what that's what the athletes get. Do you know that the education department did that? Do you know how bad I feel about myself right now? What do you mean? What did you get? They were amazing. They sent each of us. There were three of us, Amy, Kelly, who's halftime, and okay. Jenny and myself. I don't know. I, I feel as though that. Those like little touches that yes. exist about it, I feel like those go a long way. Yes. And I would imagine you, as a teacher, you're hyper aware of those little nuances that exist. Yeah, it's about creating the, the community, right? Right. But, so my, my sister-in-law is, is a preschool teacher, and I see her consumed by creating a physical space for the kids when they come into class and them feeling welcomed and appreciated. And just the amount of time, forget the resources and the right. cost of it, that's a that's a whole other conversation. But just the amount of time that she invests into doing that, into making the kids walk in, not think of it because they're kids, but just still you know, feel welcomed. How much, how much of that is, is part of your... Can you actually teach teachers that? 
Well, it's very much like secondary class, like high school classrooms aren't like that. It's not like the fun Fetty from the ceiling and mm-hmm. all that. But I feel like people who want to be elementary teachers are like, that's what they want. It's like a different breed of human, isn't it? It is. So <laughs> when you meet somebody who says, I want, I think I want, does it ever start with, I think I want to be a teacher? Or is it emphatically, I, I want to be a teacher? I don't know. Well, by the time I see them, hmm. they're a little more committed. Okay. Because I, I get a lot of students who are, well, Professor Blight, I think I want to insert thing. And even, and they're like fourth and final year, like, I think I want to go into this profession. But for, in your case, it's, I, I want, like, That's I'm a, going to be. With a pre-professional type program, I mean, if they want to finish in four years, they need to have, by then, within their second year, really, they need to figure it out. Oh my gosh! Which is hard, but to meet, to meet state mandates. I mean, it's a licensure, right? So, right. it's not a North Central decided thing. Yeah, and and I wonder how many people. <clears throat> I mean, people are aware of that, right? I just I can't. I so I, I sort of lucked into public relations as a major my mm-hmm. junior year of college. I was a business major for the first two years, took a bunch of finance, micro and macroeconomics, accounting, hated it all, was decent enough at it. And then I stumbled into PR. And so I had the affordance because there isn't sort of like a state or nationwide licensure. It was, I, I think I want to sure. do this. And I was lucky, but f- colleagues of mine, friends of mine who were going to be teachers, in my mind, and this is completely anecdotal, they always just knew. They, they, when I met them, they're like, I'm going to be a teacher. I love children, or I, I want to be a high school science teacher or a high school music teacher. And they just always felt like they knew, which I know is not always the case. But did you, you, you knew? I was- knew. I knew from since elementary school. What? So you went, you went home and said, I'm going to be a teacher. And I spent all my time playing school, and it was never a question. Not, okay. Walk me through this. You're how old? Nine. Nine. Eight or nine. And you just, it's just this awakening in you. You go, I'm I'm going to be a teacher. And guardians, parents, receptive to that idea? Sure. No one else in my family had been a teacher. Okay. But, sure. I, I don't know. I don't know how my family would react to that. Because my family doesn't really know what I do now. Oh, they know a lot less of what I do now. I think a teacher is easier to grasp because it's this thing that fundamentally everyone goes through. Everyone has experienced it, but they didn't really know what it meant to be a teacher until they came to my classroom and visited. And they're like, oh, like like seeing it through a teacher's eye versus seeing it through a student's eye is different in terms of what it, like how you actually prepare. What what goes into it. Right. when you say prepare, you're talking about from the lesson plan to the execution to the assessment. Right. The right. whole the whole thing. Right. Because a good teacher makes it look, look easy and you don't see all that stuff. And so it's like, oh, but you have summers off. Mm, not, not really. Not quite. No. It's just like here. Like, mm. Is it sum- summer off? That's not really like, I don't have office hours in the summer. Right. <laughs> <Is> that- <laughs> When, how far along in your career was it before you had someone come, like a family member or a friend come observe you teach? Was it early on? My first year. Your first year? Yeah. I actually, my dad came 
and co-taught a lesson with me each year i was teaching really yeah he like he likes magic tricks and so we would do like math probability lessons together really um so my dad came every year my grandmother's a holocaust survivor and she and my mom would come we would read it like part of our curriculum was genocide and the holocaust and so she would come and talk to all the fifth graders when i was teaching every year so they were all in my school every year in my building. So they obviously certainly invested in it, willing participants in this thing. You didn't have to coax them into it at all? No. So so now on on the teaching teachers side right. of your career, do you get to pull the same type of charades or involving family and friends into the classroom? Yeah. Um, they've been to my – my mom's been to my office. They ask a lot of questions. About – just about like what it is I actually do. So, Lindsay, what what do you do? What because do- I I'd imagine when they finally saw you in action as a teacher, right? They unpacked this idea of what actually goes into it. They saw it in real time. It clicked. They go, oh, okay, this is different than just what we would have thought. And now you have to almost sort of like reinvent or re-identify yourself as the second career in a way yes and i'm heading like but you have the summer off again but you still have the summer off. i still have the summer <laughs> off. i think like the whole tenure thing is like confusing so you teach and you only teach two or three classes at a time like you're only teaching what like eight hours a week right. what else do you do it's nothing actually <laughs> i hide in a closet until i have to teach again like you're going to you're going to conferences what are you doing there presenting oh really why well if i want to keep my job right part of my job is getting to share my work part of my job is you know sharing through presentations parts through writing um i think it's you know it's just different and also when i was a college student i had no idea what my faculty what the faculty members did other than teach no when walk me through the the difference because i would imagine this is probably it could theoretically be a challenge for you adapting to a different lifestyle when you were you're still a teacher i'm going to reference this as when you were a teacher (laughs) you started your day at what time you got to the school what time and what time did you leave so when i was teacher i was in my classroom by 6 30 in the morning okay and i left around 3 30 i went home i worked out and then i graded or planned at home from five five, from probably took a break and then i worked from like Six to eight or something like that. Okay. This was pre-child. 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 Di- completely different universe. Very different universe. Okay. <laughs> so that that's a very, that's a Monday through Friday. It's Monday through Friday. They Six. tell you when you can go pee. Like I can go pee from 10 to 10.15 and then again at one. Okay. Very structured. Very structured. Very regimented. That, that was the hardest part of going from being an elementary teacher to being a PhD student was... I knew exactly what I was doing every single second of every single day. And as a doctoral student, I had some classes, but like I had to figure out what my days looked like. Right. Uh, and I feel like four years of doing that helped me figure out how to structure my days now. Mm. Well, I mean, my, my original thought was that I, for me, I've, I've always had sort of like a, a roughly loose schedule going from grad school and, and working in HR and doing all of that. That that latter bit was much more structured. You get in at 8 and you leave at 5 or whatever the time was. 
But for a lot of people, one element of, of what they don't understand of being faculty or professors is, as you talked about before, the timing part of it. You're only in a classroom for X amount of hours per week. What do you do in the other period of time? And, and for some people, that can be a challenge. It can be an area where they don't know what to do. Right. And so they have to figure out how to fill that time with meaningful work and meaningful effort. So walk us through your day now. You wake up at... Depends when Ben wakes up. When Ben wakes you up. At 5.30. Same here. Okay. Um, so like today I teach at 8 o'clock. Okay. So I left the house at 6.30. Mm-hmm. Or 6.45, so I'm in my office by 7. So I spend from 7 to 8 making sure I'm ready for class, responding to emails, teach from 8 to 9.10. Then I have um, typically student meetings, meetings one-on-one with students for either class that I'm teaching. In, I'm now trying to get a workout in at some point to keep my um, focus because I teach another class from 4 to 6. Okay. So... Um, the 8 a.m. and then the 4 to 6, I I can't, my body won't let me focus that whole time. Mm. So I need a little bit of a break so I still have energy to be full on at 4. So I do that, do a lot of grading, a lot of responding to emails, a lot of setting up schedules because I supervise students in the field who are practice teaching. Yeah. So then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, when I'm not teaching, I'm typically in the field observing or reading lesson plans and providing feedback. I try to keep one day that's mostly research. Mm. So I try to be at home for one day or part of one day because I'm able to focus more at home. So that's when I do writing, do some reading, maybe work on proposals. And... That's ish my schedule, but it isn't terribly structured in the same sense that it used to be. But I have a lot of different to-do lists on my board in my office with a lot of different deadlines. Well, it's not so much people structuring it for you; it's you having to structure it. You let's go. There's there's a lot of fun buzzwords that you got back to. When you're talking about looking at students or observing students in the in the field, and they're actually in the classroom. They're act right. So part of their coursework is they have to have they have field hours. So they have 50 field hours for the course I just taught this morning. They're in the field for 50 hours during these 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. And they have to teach four lessons during those 10 weeks. And they have to write lesson plans that they send before they teach to get feedback and make revisions. Teach, they get observed by a North Central supervisor for two of the lessons. And then their cooperating teacher observes them for two of the lessons. And they're all, are they local they're all within probably 30 minutes up here. Okay. How many total hours do you think over a 10-week term do you invest into one student? So we're talking about mm-hmm. observing them teach, emailing, meeting with them, le- grading and providing feedback for their lesson plans, all of that stuff. I don't know. All of the hours. All of the hours. More, all of the more hours. than one. Less than 200. Um, more than one, less than 200. That sounds about right. Yeah. Um, I've had, last week I probably met with 20 students individually for one-on-one meetings. I taught for six years, but now it's been five years since I was had my own classroom. And there's been changes in teacher assessment policy. There's been changes in the curriculum that are, that are used in schools. 
the data procedures have changed. So all of that really affects the work of the teacher. So if I'm not physically there, how do I make it evident in my in my work? Do you find within your sort of tangent, within your parenting style, that you are sometimes being to teacher mommy versus just being sort of an unstructured mom mm-hmm. in just letting the child play? Because I I am absolutely guilty of trying to be very academic sometimes with my approach with Alex and making sure that he's really understanding it and he's able to communicate to me what he's seeing and what it feels like. And then I sort of, you know, mental slap in the head and I go, just just let him play with the, the crayon for a little bit. <laughs> he doesn't need to draw a star or answer how many sides there are in a rectangle. He can just make squigglies and, and that's perfectly okay. That's interesting. I think that... Ben has made me kind of pull back a little bit and see like really the value of the of free play, like student choice being really important. My husband will say, you're giving the teacher luck again. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, no. <laughs> what did I? Okay. Um, but I'm, I think the teacher part of me that's really evident at home is I'm super careful of what books we look at and being really aware of author representation and character representation and we you know make sure that we are reading a lot of books by authors of color because most authors that are published are white sure uh, that we are reading books about student about kids who live in apartments and live in houses yeah. and who are muslim or christian or jewish and just being really aware of you know, I when I go to the library, I request a bunch of books in advance so we're not just picking what we happen to see because what we happen to see is likely going to be written by white authors about white characters. Yeah, I mean, if you were just a, a fun math experiment would be if you were to just pick out a hundred books at random from the children's section, the volume of books written by white authors about white characters, I, I don't even know what the arbitrary number would be, but it would be exceptionally high. Right. Which can be very demoralizing. And I wonder, you as an educator, you understand the value add in having representation of characters and authors and ideas and stories. The simplicity that we typically don't think about in terms of, oh, this person lives in this kind of neighborhood, in this kind mm-hmm. of environment with one parent or two parents or three, you know. So that's, that's the benefit of, of you being an exceptional educator. However... If you were to just look at any parent who thinks that they're doing the right thing and just buying a book because it looks like a cool book or it looks like a fun book or it's colorful, that there are potentially some hazards that are built into that. So how how do you, if, if at all, go about talking to other parents about you know where to start for finding different types of books or authors or representation? So I would never discourage anyone from reading. I think that any book is a good book. But there's better books okay. out there too, right? Um, so we we all we have books everywhere in our house, and they're you know right now one of Ben's favorite books is Anne Tango Makes Three, which is about two male penguins who are fathers, um, and that's a you know we don't typically read books about GLBTQI characters, and that's so that's 
in our library. I think we have a lot of books just out that are conversation starters. Ben really likes Marlon Bundo. Do you? Mm -hmm. Loves Marlon Bundo. Um, so that's, I think, a conversation starter. For when friends have kids, I'm very conscious about what books I buy for them. Yeah. To kind of start curating their library. We have we have a Sesame Street book that's called Celebrate You, Celebrate Me. Maybe Celebrate Me, Celebrate You. Some order of those words. And each page has, you know, the lift to flap that focuses on some yeah. nuance of the character that that is a little bit different. But the main sentiment of the text is even though we're all different, we're all the same. And, and it's a very feel good moment. And I, I don't probably because it didn't exist, but I don't remember growing up and hearing any of those sentiments or reading any of those things. Right. I grew up in a, in a relatively diverse area of Chicago and I saw differences in people and a ton of similarities in real life but i never remember any sort of movie or book or magazine that really captured that essence because we don't often talk about the students in our class who have two moms we don't often talk about um social we don't talk about poverty when we have students who are in homes that have low socioeconomic status. I don't know what happened with Alex, but we've, I think, subjectively, I think we've done a pretty good job of not influencing him one way or another as to what masculinity really looks like or feels like or femininity. But I ask him about the colors of cars. And so I say, what color is daddy's car? And he says, green. I'm like, yeah, it's close enough. It's like a, this is a greenish. And I go, well, what color is Alex's car? And he's got this little car in the garage. He says, blue. I'm like, yeah, got it. I'm like, what color is mommy's car? And mommy's car is silver. And he says, pink. And I'm like, oh, no, I have failed. <laughs> he automatically thinks that his mother's car should be pink. I'm a horrible father. I need a hard reset on this. I need to go back in time and figure out what, what happened. And then I also took a step back and went, you know, it's pink. It, it's not. But in his mind, maybe he just likes saying the word. And so I think sometimes I sort of overreact. I think all parents are guilty of this. We overreact that we have forever scarred them and ruined their life. But it goes back to things before Alice was born. People would ask, well, what do you know if it's going to be a boy or a girl? And we say, no, we're, we're not going to find out. And they go, my grandmother in particular goes, well, how am I supposed to know what color to buy the thing? What, what, color to buy the clothes or the onesies or whatever it is i'm like literally any any color it's a baby it's a baby who needs clothes and a lot of them all the time so if it's a boy it could wear yellow or pink or blue or red and that to somebody who's who's in their 80s is not a very um not an easy conversation to have because she continuously still to this day will push back on that thought why is he wearing? Why is he wearing purple? It's because because he, he likes that shirt. But how frustrating is it? How hard it is to find purple and pink clothes. I know. It's relegated to a section in the back, if it yeah. even exists. Ben's favorite color right now is pink. Um, but he has very few pink clothes because so we do a lot of drawing with pink. But 
like how gendered the stores are and like what is on the boys clothes versus what is on the girls clothes yeah. it's crazy like anybody should wear dinosaurs or princesses but like why do we need frill like bows and frilly things on one set well and similarly if we think about um characters non-white characters and like can they just be characters in the book does it have to exploit different aspects I mean, it's a balance. I, like, part of it is we need to recognize the systemic inequalities that have existed. But the other part is, like, let there be a student and let there be a kid in the book who happens to be, who happens to have uh, parents from India, but it's not about being Indian. Right. I, I, you're right about striking the balance. I don't know how we do it. I... There's always the no- the novelty of the character or the novelty of the experience of that person. And I think in, in a lot of these situations, you don't see the white character, for instance, be a, ba- a background character. It's like, oh, there's there's other characters in this and we have representation. There's a child of color in the back. Like, do you not see them in the book? And then I think we start to stray further and further away from understanding what representation looks like what it feels like what it sounds like and i i have the affordance of having and i mentioned this before i I have the affordance of having a white child and so if he just at random picks out a book he'll see a character presumably that looks like him that sounds like him that's heralded as the cool kid and not a lot of his peers as he grows up will have that same privilege afforded to them Rudine Sims Bishop says that uh, we need books that are windows, mirrors, and sliding doors. So windows so we can look out and we can see experiences that are different from ours. Mirrors so we can see people whose experiences represent ours. And then sliding doors, which is it's like the window with added activism. So we see experiences that are different and they make us want to act. So we need exposure with all three types of texts. Hmm. And so as we curate our personal libraries and our classroom libraries, we need to make sure that we've created our library knowing our students, knowing the types of experiences they have had, the types of experiences they haven't had, so that we can make sure that at least through literature, we're providing them um, new experiences, but also equally, or I don't know if equally is the right word, but also important for students to be able to see themselves in what they read. There, There's always this asterisk that's associated with that comment which is parents have to know what's going on there's there's a certain degree of investment that exists for them to understand what's happening at home what's being talked about what's happening at school and then what's happening in any extracurricular thing that exists and so there is this really pressing issue of parent parental involvement what it looks like what it feels like and the evolution of that so when I was teaching fifth grade, I called every parent before school started to introduce myself and just learn about their child so that we were starting off on a positive foot and that when they saw my number calling, they didn't have a negative. They didn't, like, get nervous about it. I think that I don't know how what makes millennial parents' interactions. I don't know how to prepare them for that because I'm not really sure what that looks like or sounds like in different different ways in terms of forming school parent relationships yeah i i think it's your point that there might be much more commonality just strictly as a parent teacher relationship than 
the generational component to it. My parents were always interested in how I was doing, but never really involved. This is going to be a damning comment. Never really involved to the same extent that as a parent now, I just want to be constantly involved, very enamored into it. And so I wonder if Are you a helicopter parent? I'm not, <laughs> I don't think. My, my mom became one when I went oh. off to college as a first-gen college student and off in a distant place in Bloomington Normal. And she, uh, yeah, she became a helicopter parent. And so I, I wonder what that looks like moving forward and living mm. through that experience of wanting to be very heavily involved in my son's upbringing and in his education. And I think that's our duty and obligation as parents, but also having the recognition that not all parent-teacher relationships have to be beautiful and sunny and but also at the same time not also tumultuous right and so how to strike the balance between hey this is my son i love him very much i want what's best for him and also not pulling the hey i'm a teacher card and you're not doing this job well because i'm not that type of teacher i don't i I truly don't get it and i think a lot of people self-righteously think that they get it it's like i was a student i understand what a teacher does and that's that's not at all the case. Right. Yes. I try not to get bogged down by the future and what those conversations look like and what they feel like. And and I, I, I worry, too, that at some point you, you could, and I, I don't think you ever would, but you could pull the card of, hey, teacher, not only am I a teacher, but I'm a teacher of teachers, and I want to let you know that these are my credentials and what I say is right and what you're doing is wrong. And again, I don't think you're going to do that. I hope that the perspective I take is that there's so many more hours that I have at home mm-hmm. with my child than he is at school and the experiences that we can provide and the types of learning that we can provide out of school, even if I disagree with something that's happening in school, can counterbalance <laughs> Well, Lindsay, thank you for your time. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. This has been a very exciting conversation. Is it the most exciting conversation of the year? Yes, but it's only April. That's fair. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So there we go. Thank you for listening to the third episode of For the Students, which I think is a good name. I hope it's a good name. Anyway. If you have, and this is something that I mentioned at the end of the second podcast, if you have any ideas in terms of content, talking points, things that you think are maybe worthwhile or would enhance the listening experience to the podcast, you can shoot those ideas over to me um, either on Twitter, at Michael Blight, or via email, mgblight at nocontrol, N-O-C-T-R-L, dot edu that's my official north central college email address and i i hope that you continue to listen and continue to support and uh, share share the word share the share the good word a little bit biblical more biblical than i anticipated but the sentiment is still the same thank you and i'll uh, i'll see all of you in the next podcast